Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. At the recent Labour Party conference in Brighton, the party's deputy leader described Tories as scum. Keir Starmer is struggling in the polls and questions are being raised about his leadership. I don't think Boris Johnson is a bad man. I think he's a trivial man. However, some believe Labour's problems go deeper than one man. Today, I will be speaking to The Telegraph columnist and feminist campaigner Suzanne Moore about the Labour Party, trans rights and the culture wars. I started by asking the same question Keir Starmer was asked at his conference. Do only women have cervixes? Oh, that's a good question to start off with, isn't it? Yes, I think only people with female biology have cervixes, so that's women. And people who are identify as trans men have cervixes, but that's because they have female biology. So... I think, on the whole, for most people, the understanding is that only women have cervixes. But if women want to define themselves in a different way, that's up to them. Why couldn't Keir Starmer admit to that fact? My feeling on all this is that many of these sort of pronouncements that were made by people like Keir Starmer and people in the Labour Party are just an attempt to adhere to the ideology that they think is fashionable and that they actually haven't really bothered to research it very well, to understand the issues or to consider the voices of many of of their own supporters and women in the party who are not happy with some of the compromises that would need to be made. And um, I think people wanted a clear direction from Starmer and they they just didn't get one. And he and Lammy and uh, Barry Gardner and all of them ended up looking... Absolutely sort of ridiculous, I think. Do you think he'd prepared for that question? Do you think he was coming up with that answer on the fly? Well, it felt like it was on the fly because he said it was a thing... He didn't really say yes or no, did he? He said it's a thing that shouldn't be said, as though it was somehow illegal to say what is basically a a statement of fact or reality or medical science or any of these things that are now apparently in question. He should have been much better prepared because Ed Davey had been asked it the week before, hadn't he, on by Andrew Marr. So it's not that people are, are particularly invested in the trans debate because most people are fairly liberal about how people want to live their lives. But I do think a lot of people 
and I count myself as one of them, you know. But I do think a lot of people are very concerned about how this affects women's rights, and, this, and especially in the Labour Party, uh, which are meant to be a party that has um, fought for women's rights and uh, trade union rights and maternity leave and all these things. So he should have been much better prepared for it. And I don't think they understand the strength of feeling that there is uh, amongst their own supporters about this issue. And then David Lammy said, you know, this is an issue that never comes up on the doorstep. And immediately people who'd been out with him campaigning said that wasn't the case. You've been a journalist for a long time. You've been a columnist. Forever. Um, (laughs) Forever. Well, there you go. You know the uh, importance of language. And this debate is essentially around language, isn't it? And there's other Mm. terms they use. Mm. You know, they talk about birthing people. What Mm. is this manipulation or sort of campaign to change the language that we use? What's the impact of that? Well... Anybody who knows anything about language knows that it changes. Um, uh, You know, now we talk about gay people and most people are happy to do that. So I don't think it's about, you know, a few group of sort of bolshy feminists subjecting to a change in language. The difficulty is, is that no one feels that they've been consulted about this change in language. So I am suddenly supposed to call myself a cis woman and use pronouns that say she, her, for the benefit of who? For the, there's, you know, the estimates at the moment are about 1% of the population may be trans, it it might be 500,000 people in the country, it might be more, you know, more people are certainly identifying in that way. But why should more than half the population suddenly have to change how they speak about themselves? And also, some of us feel, I think, that we are being kind of... Uh, language is very powerful. I mean, reclaiming language and naming yourself and naming your own experiences has been part of the freedoms that women have now and the liberation of women. So when people talk about erasure, they mean if you cannot, for instance, say the word mother and you have to say the word birthing parent or something that you lose you lose a whole kind of identity and 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 part of women's history so i noticed that when some of the uh, newspapers were talking about for instance the changes in abortion law in texas that make it virtually impossible to have an abortion they they were talking again about birthing pregnant people and you know Pregnant people are women, and this is a law that affects women, and we should just be able to use that word. And I think there are a lot of trans people out there as well who would, you know, go along with or be quite happy to just be included by saying, you know, women and non-binary people or women and, you know, transgender people. You can do both. But the strange thing that's happening at the moment is all of this language, which is we're told is about inclusivity is actually excluding half the population. So something very straight, it's a bit sort of double think, Orwellian double think, I think. And yet many institutions now have completely uh, gone along with it. Well, it's interesting because trans activists would argue that by using this language, as you say, it's exclusionary to them. And 
they would even, some even argue that by not using proper ways to describe trans people, that mm. they are being put at risk somehow or that they feel mm-hmm. unsafe yeah. because of this language. How do you come back to that? And, you know, someone's saying to you, you're, you're making me feel unsafe or you're sort of trying to erode my existence or something. Mm. How do you argue against that? I find, I find this argument really, really peculiar because, you know, the idea, somehow we've moved. I think, I think the idea has come a lot from campuses in, in, in America, actually. But the idea that, say, somebody in another building using a word that you don't particularly like can actually make you feel violated or unsafe... And I find it really strange that we're having this discussion at a time when we are really, at the moment, horribly aware of how unsafe women are because of the awful murders of Sarah Everard and Sabina Ness. And, you know, our front pages have literally been full of pictures of murdered, murdered women or, you know, horrible stories of abuse and so on. So I don't believe as some trans activists seem to believe, um, not all, but some, that words are, as they call them, literal violence. I think literal violence is, you know, an, an, an act. I don't think words are something that, I think they can be hurtful, of course I do. I know they are, I know that, but I think the issue is that we are, we're trying to kind of, all get along and some people are saying look this is my reality and if you don't adhere to my reality you are making me feel very very not only uncomfortable but you're putting my life in danger and I think that's an an exaggeration a complete exaggeration and certainly in the case of I know I mean there's, there's hate crime against trans people and gay people and certainly against women although against women there's no definition of hate crime. We don't, misogyny is not a hate crime. So, you know, uh, people are, protect, are protected in certain ways. Um, and I don't underestimate how difficult it is to be, to, to, to be trans. And I'm sure you must get a lot of, you know, a lot, there's a lot of abuse and discrimination and, and all of those things. I totally uh, accept that. But the statistics that are bandied about by trans activists, when you actually drill down, are not... Or a kind of emotional blackmail sometimes, because I think last year there was a trans day of remembrance that a lot of celebrities got involved. Well, I mean, we have two or three women being killed a week. I mean, it went up in the pandemic, being murdered, often, usually, nearly always by their so-called partners. And no trans person in the last couple of years has been killed in this country. Thankfully, thank God, you know, um... So the figures on trans people always being the most marginalised and so on are really coming from places like Brazil where a lot of trans people are involved in sex work and have really terrible, terrible lives and are at real risk of violence and, you know, murder. But we're just not in that situation here. And and I don't think we need any of us to kind of up the situation. Many, many people going through puberty are having a really difficult time, especially young girls. And, and that's that's what we've seen at, at places like the Tavistock, that the number of referrals to the Tavistock was always boys who felt uncomfortable and wanted to tr- transition. And now it's, it's shot up, like, sort of, you know, a huge increase to, to, to girls. And girls are just saying, I suppose, I am really uncomfortable in my body in becoming an adult woman. And... 
there may be several answers to that. And one may be, one may be for them to transition, but there may be other ways. Um, certainly other countries like Sweden are kind of going down a different path. There's so much to unpack there. And as you say, quite rightly, it's a hugely nuanced and complex issue. Isn't the point about by using this language of you are making me feel unsafe, you're putting my life in danger, you're not mm. recognising my existence. Isn't mm. the point of that language to shut you down and to censor you? Yes, I think it is to shut you down very much. And I also think it, it's a massive deflection on where the real problems lie. Who discriminates and murders and is violent and makes threats to trans people? It's not feminists. Who kills women? It's not feminists. I mean, the issue lies with male violence. And that's a really, you know, that's the thing we're not, we never really talk about. So somehow to be identified as a turf or someone who's not going along with this ideology, you then become the enemy. And yet the, the threat, I mean, so obviously I've had loads and loads of threats from my stance, but just, I mean, it's, this isn't about me, but... Anybody could look at what happened to J.K. Rowling, for instance, who wrote what I consider to be a, a fairly reasonable, you know, reasoned essay about her feelings and why she had these feelings. And, you know, the absolute kind of level of vitriol and abuse and death threats and bomb threats and rape threats that appeared on Twitter is unbelievable. I mean, it's just horrific, really. So... Who is safe and who isn't safe is a really good question because I want trans people to feel safe. Of course I do. But I also want women to feel safe. And isn't that, you know, that's the point that we need to get to. But it's become the debate, as you know, has become so incredibly polarised that people are actually scared now to say anything, really, because... Possibly they're working in an institution where they might, may lose their job um, or they will just be kind of cast out. And uh, yeah, I see it as a kind of faith, you know, and you, and you become a heretic and it's just not a faith I share. And, and, and normally, you know, in life, I, mean, I, I have friends who are religious, for instance. They know that I'm not, but they don't demand that I share their religion. Um, you know, it's kind of a bit live and let live, and I and I feel the same way about this. I can totally, and I have trans friends, I always have had, I totally accept that this is the way that they want to live. But I don't have to believe that I can no longer refer to myself as a, as a mother or I'm simply a menstruator or a cervix haver. I still think these words are mine to use, and I think they've been very important. I think one of the things that feminism has achieved is over the last sort of, well, in my lifetime, is things that women didn't used to talk about except with each other, like whether it's periods or giving birth or the menopause or physical things that we were all meant to be terribly ashamed of. We talk about it a bit more now, and it's been important, really important for us to be able to do that. And so, yeah, these specifically female experiences matter. The other thing is, if you're interested or if you're on the left, or even if you're a liberal, I would say, or if you, or just somebody who cares about the whole kind of global situation, there are many, many places in the world where there is no way 
that your biology doesn't determine your destiny. I mean, you know, try identifying your way out of being a woman in Afghanistan right now or, you know, or in the Congo or in Eritrea. So this is a very kind of privileged discussion to be having, isn't it? I want to talk about your experiences of being on the receiving end of these activists. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. although it's been incredibly unpleasant for you, it must have been at the same time interesting as someone, I'm sure, as mm-hmm. I'm sure you are, uh, who's intellectually curious to, to experience what it's like to be like on the end of a sort of radical, what I think is a radical ideology. Um, and that's what I, you talked about religion, you know, that's what ideologies do to people, isn't it? And just sticking mm. on this, this cervix issue as well, just a, a, one more question on that, because it's so important. One of the uh, you know, other threats to women is cancer, cervical cancer. And can you talk about the kind of the impact this debate has on people not or women not getting screened for this, this cancer, especially with COVID and the lockdowns? You know, we've seen a huge amount of people not going to get checked for, for lumps and things like that. So can you talk about the impact of that? Yeah, I, that's, you know, that's a real, thank you for raising that because that's a, just a really kind of pragmatic point about this stuff. When I go to my doctors, for instance, on the wall, uh, the um, telling women to go for cervical smears is written in about three or four different languages because lots of people where I live speak different languages. And they are really not going to um, identify with the word cervix habits. They just aren't. So the lang- all communication, health communication has to be clear. I mean, all health professionals know that. And already only one in three women are going for their regular tests. And, and that's really kind of heartbreaking because this is one of the cancers that if caught early really is not a problem. It really isn't. And it, you know, several of my friends had bad smear tests, had some treatment years ago, never, never another issue. But if it is left untreated, I mean, it is serious. So women are already not going. Women whose language is not, whose first language is not English, will not understand this kind of new hip, you know, service have a business. Women are already often ashamed when you ask them why they won't go for a smear test. You know, there are all sorts of reasons. And um, sometimes they only want a woman doctor or sometimes, you know, they, they feel, yeah, they feel, they just feel a lot of, lot of shame about such a kind of intimate procedure. And, well, we should just, obviously, we should encourage that as much as we should encourage women to check for lumps in their breasts and so on and all of these things. It was interestingly, I don't even think this could happen now, and I wasn't a supporter of her, but Theresa May, who stood up in Parliament and said, you know, we've got an issue here and we need to sort this out. And the idea that we now can't sort of speak about it or we have to speak about it in a way that the average person won't hear or can't understand is is a step backwards, surely. So, yes, it is really, it's really important. And I think... It was clear, you know, watching the fallout from the Labour uh, Party conference that uh, these a lot of these guys don't really know what a cervix is either. (laughs) I mean, they felt it really mad. I mean, 
really crazy. And then that trans woman, India Willoughby, offered to show hers to Adrian. Well, well, that's amazing because you can have all sorts of things done to yourself. But and she has. But I'm sure. But um, good luck to her. But she hasn't got a cervix. You know, you can't have a cervix transplant um, when they reconstruct a vagina out of a penis. I mean, I'm sorry, the cervix bit isn't there. That's the other thing. I think people should just be. Anybody who wants hormones or surgery and to go through that procedure, go through these procedures, I think we have to have an honesty about what they are, what they do, where they work, where they don't work, what the risks are and whether people are fulfilled by these things. Because right now we have, there are people who've transitioned and it's absolutely the right thing to do. It's made them feel at one with themselves and they go on to have great lives. But there are also people who really regret what they've done and feel that they didn't have enough perhaps therapy or understanding before they went forward for these things. And yeah, I think we just have to have a much more kind of honest talk about it. But even saying that is seen as somehow anti anti trans or trying to stop trans people being happy or existing. And I mean the the argue the, the thing that is said to me and to people like me is our lives are not up for debate we exist well of course i mean i'm not i'm not you know i'm not denying anybody's existence and um but i am concerned about in fact like my my sort of big issue isn't really trans people my issue is to protect the rights that women already have and to make sure that especially young teenagers or teenage girls are not sent down a medical pathway at, that they come to regret later. I'm just curious to yeah. know whether you think you would be able to have this discussion at your former newspaper. Which, which particular bit of it? All I... of the stuff we've <laughs> talked about in the last 20 minutes or so, would The Guardian have enabled such an interview? Maybe they would, I don't know. Well, not with me, no. I mean, I wasn't the only person at that newspaper, I'm happy with the direction. I mean, many, many, many people were, but people are also, you know, we were going into COVID, people are worried about their jobs. People really are scared to speak up because if you, you know, look at the people who speak up and look, look at what happens to them. I'm not saying this out of self-pity because I'm fine. I'm, I'm at the Telegraph, I'm happy. I'm doing my thing. I can, you know, I'm able to say what I want to say, which is, that's always been like really important to me, really more than kind of where, you know, where I say it. And uh, so I'm fine. And I'm sure JK Rowling, although that's been really, really tough for her, you know, is kind of fine. But who I worry about is like people who approach me in the street, you know, or I know who are something like, a, you know, a teaching assistant in a primary school and uh, some little boy has put a skirt on and, they've thought that was fine, but somebody else has whisked them off to see if they have a kind of gender dysphoria. Whereas I would be very much kids just like kids play in all sorts of ways and just leave it, you know. They can't speak up because they feel that they will be branded as transphobic and they could possibly lose their jobs. I mean, since all this fuss happened to me, the number of emails and letters I get from people who are very concerned about the direction some of this stuff is going in. It's big, and, and it can be from, like, I'm quite shocked sometimes. I mean, it can be from consultants, from, endo I can't say, I can never say this word, en endo 
doctors who deal with hormones, endocrine, en, well, do you know what I mean? Oh God, en, yeah, we know what you mean. <laughs> endocrinologists, I think it is. Anyway, I can never say it, but so you've got consultants writing, uh, saying, you know, that they're not allowed to use the word male and male and female, and yet their whole thing is sorting out hormones and midwives and um, many people sort of just concerned about how they are meant to address people and because that's another part of the trans ideology isn't it this thing that sex is assigned at birth which is a I mean I've got three children sex is not randomly assigned at birth you you assign you can assign sex in a in a fetal scan at 12 weeks actually if you want to you can do it privately about six or seven weeks and i know this because i've done stories where there's been i've, I've been to parts of the world where there is sex selection i.e they have bought female fetuses you know there's quite a lot quite a few places in the world where that happens and uh, of course it happens because they have assigned sex in the womb very, very early on. And so some of this language that we're now meant to accept, I find quite difficult to accept. And I think there's a real blurring between the idea of sex, which is, for me, biological, the you know, biological reality, and gender, which is the social construct that we learn and some of us are more or less masculine or fit into those roles and, or not, you know. But, you know, the idea that a midwife, you know, that you have a baby and you go, oh, what, what do you reckon it is then? And someone randomly comes along and says, <laughs> I think I was talking to a you know doctor the other day and they just said, you know, at the moment, you know, as soon as a baby is born, it's observed just as you know, the baby is observed and yes, it is decided by genitals, and it's the first thing people always ask, isn't it? Is it a boy or a girl? And that's just one of the observations. Another is they weigh it and they measure the head circumference. It's a series of observations, and it's just the standard procedure. But the first thing people always say, is it a boy or a girl? And it is not this... There are very, very, very tiny number of cases where it, people are intersex, and that's you know, really difficult conversations for, for doctors to then have with parents about what they're going to do. But this is like, we're talking about sort of 0.01% or something. There is an argument to say that historically, the Conservatives, and I don't mean the party, but the ideological sort of movement, have been yeah. the sort of Puritans, the people who have restricted freedom of speech, the people who have wanted to sort of, you know, be very socially conservative when talking about matters of let's say, you know, gay people or whatever it is. Um, mm. and as, but, but as, you know, religion has kind of declined in Britain and in the West, and as the socially liberal movements were so successful in the, in the United States and in, in Britain during the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We had this huge uh, sexual liberation and I would say revolution within society. You know, Britain has changed so much in a very short period of time in terms of who is dominant in cultural elites. Is it a coincidence that you are now writing for the Daily Telegraph and not the Guardian? And, you know, with that context of cultural elites flipping and now the new Puritans are perhaps those on the left? I mean, it's very disturbing. It's very disturbing that it is the left on the whole that has embraced what I see as a very kind of retrograde ideology for for women because... I would have I would hope that we would be liberated from gender so people can be whatever they want to be without having to have really risky operations or being on hormones for the rest of their lives so I mean the feminist argument is to sort of break down the gender stereotypes but unfortunately some of the trans not all, but some of the trans activists seem to be totally reinforcing those stereotypes. And I see it very much as part of a kind of generalised back- backlash against uh, against women and women's rights and feminism, in fact. The thing that disturbs me is I guess I always imagined it would come much more from the right and it's coming from, yeah, so I would say a lot of this stuff is coming from the left and it's misogyny just good old-fashioned misogyny, but it's disguised in this I'm such a good person because I just love all trans people. When you talk to these people, they've never actually met a trans a person. They don't really know the arguments, but it's just like, it's a sort of way of signalling that they're just a really great, good, modern person. And and it's just a way to kind of slag off women. (laughs) And uh, that's the kind of fight, that's the kind of argument. I've been quite cheered up recently, though, because I've been to a couple of meetings, and we are always told that this is a generational issue, and it's just, like, old sort of crones like me, you know, old-school feminists who think this, and all young women are totally on board with it. And I've been to a few quite big meetings, and... There was a real mix of ages, um, and certainly it's quite difficult for young women, especially students, to to, to, set, to even question any of this stuff. Um, 
so I don't think it's quite as sort of cut and dry as people make out really on on the generational thing but I worry of course because um when we see what's being taught in universities and I, I don't know if you if we're going to talk about say uh, what's happening today with Kathleen Stock it's really you know it's really McCarthyite well why don't you why don't you give readers or viewers rather a, a bit of uh, an idea of what did happen so this is at the University of Sussex and they finally have put out a statement saying you know defending this this lecture so can you give people an idea you know this is just one example of many of what happened well, Kathleen Stock is uh, a professor of philosophy at Sussex, well respected. Her last book was called Material Girls, and it was an argument about. Really, she takes takes us through the history of how trans ideology became uh, to be what it is, and she is, yeah, she she basically thinks that people actually can't change sex, and she says that really and that this is a kind of fiction that we have all bought into. But she makes, you know, she's a philosopher, she makes, she goes through these, the history and the arguments of this. In real life, she's, you know, quietly spoken, sort of, a professor of philosophy, what, 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 and she happens to be gay. And so it, she's not somebody who's gender-conforming, as we're all, you know, that's the worst possible thing to be. Um, no. So, but this latest row, so her life has been basically been made hell for the last few years because students have complained about her saying um, that her lectures, which are, which are really, you know, her lectures are higher philosophy. I mean, uh, but the presence of her and her lectures makes them feel unsafe. And these are students who are not even doing her course have complained about her. So her life has been made difficult by that. But what's really disturbing is also some of her colleagues have, have, have complained about her. And you would imagine that there would be a sort of academic solidarity, even if you don't agree with people, you know, that you would have some solidarity with your colleagues, but no. And it's resulted in now really proper, I would, I would say, um, real intimidation. They were setting off flares. They want her fired and set up a small... I, I imagine it's a small number of people have set up an Instagram account where they, they just want her fired. And, um, and again, some of her colleagues have gone along with this. And finally, the university has come out with a, quite a strong statement in support of academic freedom. But it's almost taken it, you know, taken years for it, for it to do that. This has been going on for some time. It's been going on at Bristol. It's been going on in several universities. It's not just, it happens obviously to, to lecturers. Selena Todd at Oxford, who's a professor of working class history, had to walk around with security guards. Rosario Sanchez at Bristol couldn't do a PhD because it didn't fit in with the ideology. And I mean, this then becomes a kind of madness. And as I said, it's a, it's a witch hunt and it's a kind of McCarthyism. And that I think that wherever you stand on this issue, wherever, whatever you are, I would really like some uh, decent trans people now to speak up in support of Kathleen because I know that they exist. And I know that not everybody, you know, not everybody uh, wants to see women hounded out of jobs. They really, really don't. Uh, and, and, and what will it achieve? I mean, if, uh, if any of this 
really made the lives of trans people better in any way, I would understand it. But it, the things that trans people need and want, you know, they need much better health care, they need waiting lists to go down, they need all sorts of things that we all, you know, we all need that. But this is a kind of, I often feel it's a kind of proxy war. You know, it's, you, you, you might not be able to change the world. You might not be able to do anything about climate change. It doesn't look like we're going to have a Labour government forever. But you can get a woman fired from a university. Hey, that's really big of you, you know. Maybe, that's really great. And the le- But the level of uh, vitriol and actual nastiness involved in this is really shocking and awful. And, again, I, I think that anyone interested in freedom of speech must come out and support Kathleen whatever their views. And the the interesting thing about this one example, but also the many examples, is that the activists asking or demanding that these people are fired and Mm. removed from Mm. common humanity, basically, they they claim they're the most righteous people who are sort of wanting the biggest, you know, the most amount of progress and they're sort of basically 21st century civil rights activists and Mm -hmm. they paint you as a sort of reactionary uh, mm-hmm. you know, who, who's fighting against the forces of, of history. And mm-hmm. I would argue that this is what you see with all radical ideologies, you know, that they kind of paint themselves as righteous warriors and demean others as mm-hmm. almost evil in a way. And one of the, you know, this is kind of mixing two different debates here, but mm-hmm. one of the interesting bits of language that came out of the Labour conference that caused such a row was the deputy leader of the Labour Party, Angela Rayner, she described conservatives as scum. I'm curious mm-hmm. to think, you know, what, what do you think about that comment? Are conservatives scum? <laughs> I don't think it's exactly the right way to persuade your floating voters who you need to vote Labour if you ever want to, you know... What is it? I think Labour needs something like 125 seats to turn to, to even be within a whisper of power. So um, it's this kind of, uh, I think you use the word puritism, puritanical idea that um, that politics has become sort of a, a game of morality and you, you know, you're a moral person, you think these things, there's a tick box of these things, you're an immoral person and there's no model anymore of of persuasion, of like possibly having an, a discussion where we we might talk, we might compromise, we might change each other's minds, and it actually is leaves the left really in a, a completely precarious position, which they already are, which I find really really sad because I think even tor- even you know lifelong Tories appreciate that there should be an opposition and it's a kind of craziness but your point about civil rights you know this being a new civil rights movement and which which sometimes people will say you know it's the same as women's liberation same as gay rights and stuff and I say it isn't because there has been no other civil rights movement that has demanded that other people give up their rights you know so in the states when people were marching and black people were wanting equality with white people, they weren't demanding that white people give up their rights. You know, gay people were not demanding that straight people give up their rights. Trans people are, some, again not all, 
are demanding that women can no longer have their single-sex spaces or their language or, you know, and we see it more sort of visibly clearly in things like sports or, or their own sports, you know. So I think the idea, and I think Stonewall has been very good at promoting this idea that it is just the new civil rights movement. It's exactly the same as the ones that came before it. Uh, it's just a new version of it. It's not true. And I think there, there's a lot of rewriting of history that's going on. I mean, you, you know, I, people saying, oh, it's just, like Sto- uh, it's just like Section 28. Well, you know, I was there. I fought that. I was there around AIDS activism. I know that this is different, you know. But I'm, I'm continually being told that uh, it's just the same, you know. It's just history repeating itself. Nobody likes this marginalised major- uh, minority. And it isn't the same. It just isn't. But, uh, yeah, back to your... To Raina's comment, I just sort of wonder, really, I mean, just to be sort of pragmatic, I just wonder how people manage in their own families, in their own lives, because don't we all have relatives that we politically disagree with, that we sit around the table with, or do we say, no, you're scum, I'm sorry, you can't come for Christmas dinner because you're scum because you voted in a different way to me. And, I mean, I think recently i mean in the last few years we saw the result of talking about people like that which was brexit so the remain people who categorize all leave people as thick ignorant racist scum guess what they didn't win the over. <laughs> so i mean it, it just it, apart from it being rude or inappropriate or any of those things, it just doesn't work as a political strategy to, to actually believe that the people that you're trying to win an election against are evil. I mean, it's, I hear it all the time. I mean, I think it's a sort of thing you, I mean, I probably said stuff like that when I was, you know, 15. I mean, and, and I'm sure there are individual Tories that I really do not like, but I mean, I think that, she, she can't, you know, to categorise everybody who votes Tory, especially, you, you know, as we know, the last vote was lifelong Labour people switching. And these are the people that you've got to bring back, not call scum. You mentioned Stonewall, which is a very, very good point, because it's been in the news recently, because the BBC and other institutions, government departments uh, and companies are starting to cut ties with the organisation on its because mm. of its stance on you know the, all the things mm. that we've been talking about and i want to link this in as well with this this sussex story if you're sort of on your side of the argument you might say that both of those things are wins and that people are uh, beginning to fight back against this stuff do you see a sort of counter-revolutionary movement succeeding or um you know or are we sort of doomed to fall to the uh, the trans activists i guess i feel that people I, the more that people become a bit familiar with these arguments, I think the more they're kind of waking up to it, yeah. And the poll that's always cited about actually, you know, women, all women really support this uh, trans rights, is really much more nuanced when you look at it because, yes, they do, I do. But when you ask then if someone ha- if somebody has not transitioned, i.e. had no surgery basically retaining male genitalia and is in the changing room next to your 11-year-old daughter, are you happy about that? Then the reaction is a bit different, you know. So I think that 
there is again a confusion about I mean I certainly don't think that all trans people are predators at all I mean you know that's that's also an extreme kind of way to think but the risk the risk for women in single sex spaces i.e. prisons domestic refuges uh, women fleeing from domestic violence they just have good reason not to want to be around somebody who may present as female but is in fact you know has male genitalia. I mean, we're always accused of being fixated on genitalia, but this is a kind of reality. And I think people are understanding that a little bit more. And I think one of the areas where people do, are really seeing it is in, well, because it's so visible, is in things like sport. So when we had, you know, Laurel Hubbard uh, weightlifting, who transitions very late, apparently, and then becomes takes the woman's place in the weightlifting competition. I think a lot of people would just, hang on a minute, this is just not, you know, they're not sort of motivated by any huge history of sexual politics. They're just like, hang on a minute, this isn't fair, this isn't right. And so I think, and the Sports Council here, hasn't it, just, have just come out with a whole sort of set of guidelines saying, we are going to have to choose about what inclusivity is for trans people and what fairness is. and these are really difficult choices. Some people suggest, on, on both sides of the argument, that there will have to be a kind of third space for trans people, either in, in whether it's in a prison or you know in sports or yeah. So I, th- I I do think that some bridges can be built, but I think they can only be built once we get to a point where people are a little bit more honest about what is really happening here. And I also think we have to understand that there tends to be a kind of misunderstanding that what happens in America is the same as what happens here and what happens. And here, actually, you know, sex is a protected characteristic. And also, I often feel, yeah, when I'm talking to American feminists, who many, I have, many of whom I have huge respect for, but I, I do often feel a little bit like get your own house in order because actually American women in many places don't have maternity leave, we have the NHS. If somebody wants to transition here, it takes, you know, unfortunately, there's a very long waiting list, but, it, but it's free. And their health care and the, the hormones that they will need to be on for the rest of their lives are free. Yeah. In the States, everything is, you know, as we know, it's private. So I kind of slightly resent the idea that everything that happens in America and Biden is going along with all this because his advisors are telling him to you know, is all fantastic. And they just call Britain Turf Island because for some reason British women are just really uppity. Uh, well, maybe we are uppity, but maybe we have a different history. And maybe, you know, um, that's, it's, it's, it's not, it, that's not a bad thing. I mean, because I look at what's going on in Scotland and uh, most of it... <laughs> you know, Sturgeon just pushing this stuff through, again, many Scottish women, they're really, really unhappy. And I don't know how this is going to play for the average voter. Let's talk about Labour to finish the interview, because Mm -hmm. Labour is losing elections. You know, it's the left-wing party in Britain. We've got a weak, I think, you know, we both agree we've got a pretty weak opposition at the moment. Boris Johnson seems to be in the ascendancy, despite a lot of problems that the country's facing. Mm -hmm. And they're describing their own voters or their potential voters as scum. 
I'm interested to know what your thoughts are on the history of this. Interestingly, in 2009, I think it was, or 2010, uh, Gordon Brown was caught on a hot mic calling someone a bigot, Gillian Duffy, uh, who'd Mm. just spoken to him about her concerns to do with immigration, and I'm sure you know she voted probably voted for Brexit and and, and might be a, a, mm. a conservative voter now. How how far does this history of perhaps you know despising your own voters or despising <laughs> conservatives? How far does that go back? In the Labour Party, oh God, there's no way that I could possibly put a date on it, but I do think that there's been a how can I put this? I come from a working-class family who voted Tory. So I used to spend my entire teenage adolescence, you know, hating, probably calling my mum, you know, and grandparents Tory scum. You know, so, as I said, I, I get that, but you know, I kind of, like, kind of grew out of that, <laughs> which is <laughs> because, you, you know, you do. Um, but I think there's... And I've always been around the left and sometimes the sort of hard left. I think there's a a weird kind of taking for granted of the so-called working class, but also sort of despising despising it at the same time. And um, and it's a really kind of untenable position, really. Because also, I don't know if you saw Sebastian Payne's new book about the broken heartlands, what's the broken heartlands of England or something. Well, he, he travelled, he's... Uh, from Northumbria, he travels to the seats that had always been Tory and then uh, went Labour. And of course, it's the traditional heartlands, the post-industrial parts of the of of England that vote, always voted Labour. It's just really patchy, and it just doesn't conform anymore to those sort of old-fashioned kind of Labour ideas about what the working class is. You have these commuter towns, say outside Durham and Newcastle where people are identifying themselves as definitely aspirational and much more middle class and probably don't even see themselves as working class. You know, so Labour has a real issue here to, 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 to understand what the new class politics are. And this may seem, sound a bit odd, but I sometimes, I sort of think, Sometimes when I'm trying myself to just understand why this, for instance, this trans issue has become such an enormous issue when so many other big things are going on in the country, I think rather than really deal with the real fundamental changes in society, i.e., you know, class structure, what COVID has done, whether there can ever be a coalition of voters that say the kind that, I'm not a Blairite, but the kind that Blair put together, whether that could ever happen again, rather than really, really grapple with these incredibly difficult things, let's just have a war about 1% of the population, the trans, trans people, and let's pretend that's where all our activism must go. So I think there's a, yeah, there's a kind of avoidance of uh, dealing dealing with it. I think certain politicians say, somebody like Lisa Nandy, I don't agree with her and everything, but she was definitely, when she was standing for leadership, was saying, you know, we've got to look at the small towns, we've got to look at the rural areas, because we've got this thing now, haven't we, where Labour just is big in, sort of, you know, it, it, it is the metropolitan elite that it was always accused of being. I think it was accused of being that before it kind of was, and now it appears almost that it is, you know. Do you think until Labour uh, can get over this issue of 
talking to itself, you know, you've just mm. described mm. Their, uh, very eloquently the, the problem they've got. Until they start branching out and reaching out and understanding and sympathising with working class people and other you know, people who used to vote Labour, until they get over this issue, uh, can they ever win again? Are they sort of doomed? Well, I, I, I certainly don't feel very optimistic for, for them at the moment. And I, I don't think that all the emphasis on Starmer and is he charismatic or is he not? Well, he, yeah. well, he isn't, is he? Because I, I can't really work up any feelings about him. So I think you could have almost any leader and, and you'd still have these problems. I, I think the point at which it could possibly move is the day they give Andy Burnham a safe seat. If, if, if Burnham makes the move, I think that will be an indication that something is possibly going to change. And yet I can see why somebody like Andy Burnham is actually in a more powerful position where he is right now as a mayor of a big city, able to effect change than he would be in the Labour Party in opposition. Do you know what I mean? So I, I don't, yeah, I don't you know, what do they say? Events, dear boy, events. Anything could happen, couldn't it? And, you know, the Tories, something could go very badly wrong for them. I mean, things are going very badly wrong, but it's, I mean, loads of things are going very, very badly wrong, but it isn't denting the polls because people just don't have this trust in Labour. And they certainly, they no longer really understand what Labour represents or what it's for. And the whole idea of you know, that Stan was going to spell out the vision and all this. Well, there was a time when you could have asked the average person in the street, what what do Tories represent, what do Labour represent? And, you know, as much as I don't like it, I have to say Johnson has taken quite a lot of ground from Labour positions. And certainly COVID, he probably didn't want to, but because of COVID, I mean, we've had the biggest amount of state intervention probably we've, you know, we've seen in our lifetime. So where Labour then has to work out a response to that and it, and it, and it really hasn't yet. So yeah, they need, they need, they need a, God, I mean, they don't just need a new leader. They need a complete like reboot. And I think, I think that they know it. I, I was watching, a, have you seen the Blair Brown? Uh, yeah, I've seen the first episode. Yeah, I'm definitely, it's very good though. Yeah. Yeah. I was watching that the other day and, um, such mixed feelings about it because what you saw there though was a real hunger to win whether you like Blair whether you like Brown that's irrelevant and certainly Madison you know in background but they really wanted to win when I'm with Labour people these days I'm not sure if they want to win and I think people sense that thank you so much Suzanne that was fantastic Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.